Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue the series of classes on the halachas of Pesach, getting ready for all the many, many, many details that Pesach includes and involves. We're going to be continuing to focus on that which is most relevant practically. So we're not getting into abstract halachic theory, um, of, of which there is tremendous amount when it comes to Pesach. We're not even getting to abstract practical halacha, which is abstract because it's not practically relevant. For example, the the practical details of how to sell chametz, because in all practicality, when you're selling through the rabbi, you don't have to know and go through all the details. I mean, it's nice and everything, but we don't have the luxury of doing that. We're just going to focus on what we, each one of us, must know in order to properly observe Pesach. So with that in mind, we're going to skip to chapter 113, the laws of Arab Pesach and baking matzah. Aleph, on the day of Erev Pesach, we do not recite Mizmor Lasoida or Lamanatseach after um, Ashrei, post the Amida. Base, you are not allowed to eat chametz past the first third of the day. It's an interesting way of writing it, but that's how it is. The first third of the day is the only time period you're allowed to eat chametz. And that would start counting. We would start counting daytime from dawn until nightfall. Um, according to the Alter Rebbe, that would be counted from sunrise until sunset. A bit of a debate there. And when it comes to the prohibition of benefiting in any way from chametz, you have another halachic hour after the first third of the day. However, you measure that third of the day, you have one more halachic hour which as we know is not a 60-minute hour, but rather daytime divided into 12 equal periods. In the winter, it usually be around 45 to 50 minutes in this part of the world. Um, summertime, springtime, it ends up being 65, 70 minutes, roughly. Um, so the calendar has all these times listed out in every city. And during that extra hour, when you're allowed to derive benefit, you're also allowed to still sell the comets to a non-Jew. This is very important. After that period of time is over, when the period of time of, of your, when you're allowed to derive benefit from chametz has ended, you're also no longer allowed to sell chametz. Um, and in, in addition, any burning of chametz and any bitul relinquishing of ownership and um, declaring that your chametz is as worthless to you as the dust of the earth must all take place before the time when you're not allowed to derive any benefit from it, which is why we do it all uh, right after the time of uh, eating chametz is ended. The next thing we do is go to burn chametz and do the bitl, while there's still plenty of time in that extra halachic hour. Gimel. From midday, halachic midday, and on, not 12 p.m. Nowadays it's probably closer to 1 p.m. Um, halachic midday and on, you're not allowed to do actual work. Going lasses, kalim chadashim, for example, doing, um, fashioning new utensils, um, and you know, not, it's not banned in Malacha like Shabbos, but hard labor, um, actual manual labor should not be done from chatzot and on. The only thing you're allowed to do, it would be the same as what you're allowed to do on cholamoid. In other words, there are restrictions, you should not be working at your job unless there was some major, major loss that would be, um, you know, significant. Basically, the same restrictions that we have for Cholam in which there are um, 
certain things you're allowed to do, certain things you're discouraged from doing, certain things you're actually not allowed to do. But it's not quite like Shabbos or Chag. And when it comes to work done through a non-Jew, during this period of time, in the afternoon of Er Pesach, custom is to be lenient, um, even if it's not necessary for, for Yom Tiv. And some communities actually ban along these lines, in this same um, form of ban, not only the afternoon, but the entire day of Erev Pesach. And basically what you're left with in Erev Pesach is, is getting ready, the last bits getting ready for the Seder. Um, once, at least the way I grew up, and I think in many homes, once you're finished with burning the chametz, there's a sort of an exhale, and now it's okay, is the soup ready yet? Is, uh, are the forks out on the table? The, the hustle and bustle really drops down a notch, and you really just... Um, finishing up the last few preparations, getting ready for actual yom. It's very important. If you want to take a haircut, which you may want to do, because right after uh, going straight from Pesach, you're going into the Omer, and then you can't get a haircut. So your last chance to get a haircut before the period of Omer, no haircuts, um, begins, is Erev Pesach, and that has to be done before Chatzot. So morning of Erev Pesach is your last chance for a haircut, as well as cutting your nails. However, if you forgot to, take, to cut your nails, you can do that after Chatzot in the afternoon. Taking a haircut is forbidden in the afternoon of Erev Pesach, unless it's a non-Jewish barber, then it would be permissible. But even then, the ideal is plan A, get a haircut before Chatzot, even better, the day before. Um, even better, get your own machine, do it yourself every now and then uh, as needed, as some people do. Hey, you're not allowed to eat matzah at all from Erev, on, on, on all day of Erev Pesach. Even young children, as long as they understand the concept of the Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the Exodus, they appreciate what's happening a little bit. Pesach is a celebration in Yitziat Mitzrayim, they should also not be given matzah throughout the entire day of Erev Pesach. Um, and I believe the idea is, he's going to mention at the end, all, all of this is that you should appreciate and enjoy the matzah later that night at the Seder. It shouldn't be just like yet another snack of matzah. Make it special. Any foods that's made from ground matzah, matzah meal. Anybody can eat them, even grown-ups can eat that until the beginning of the 10th hour, um, meaning the Hainu Ad Shalyam. In other words, you can eat, let's say, matzah balls all morning, also the beginning of the afternoon, and as you get closer to evening, right, if we're talking about a 12-hour um, breakdown of 12 equal segments of daylight, so from the 10th hour and on, in other words, the last three, 10, 11, 12, the last three segments of whatever it is, 70 minutes, Right, so it'll be uh, whatever it is. It'll be three and a half hours, right? Roughly about three and a half hours, exactly three and a half hours um, from sunset. So basically, you know, the end of the afternoon, and so late afternoon and on, you should not be eating even even ground up matzo foods like matzo balls. Um, <clears throat> the Alter Rebbe disagrees and says that uh, if they're completely not if, if if there's no matzah visible, if it's completely ground, like like in a matzah ball, and you can't really tell that it's matzah ball, that there's matzah in it, 
then you can even eat it later in the day. Uh, it's a bit of a debate there. And from that point on, um, you should not be eating unless it's necessary. In other words, in general, don't eat food from late afternoon and on. Um, and if you must eat something, you can have some fruit or fish or meat. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty wide range of what you can eat. <laughs> you can't eat unless it's really necessary, and then you can eat some fruits, fish, or meat. Um, I guess no potatoes. But um, he mentions here that uh, Alter doesn't mention that halacha at all. So I guess a bit of a debate there. Be careful not to fill your belly late in the afternoon. In order that you should eat matzah on relatively empty stomach, which means you'll eat it with great gusto, with great appetite, you'll enjoy it. It won't be a burden, won't be uh, a pain in the neck. Rabbi, mm-hmm. do you eat egg matzah during that time? Because I know... Like- ah, yes. Yes, so you said before, I, I neglected to mention, matzah that's not matzah ashira. Matzah ashira yeah. is, technically, literally means rich matzah. Um, rich matzah means a matzah that's made with eggs or with uh, fruit juice. Anything that has more than just flour and water would be called rich matzah, matzah ashira. We have a very low bar until you call it rich. That's rich. That's rich. So, yeah. So, rich matzah is fine on any of these prohibited times. And the whole, the whole discussion of, of limits on eating matzah in Erpes is only about eating, like, actual matzah that you would eat at the Seder, regular flour and water matzah. Yeah, good call. Firstborn. Whether they are firstborns to their father only. Right? So, for, for example, what would that mean? person marries a woman who's been married before and has children before, second marriage for her, first marriage for him, and they have a baby boy. So for him, it's his firstborn son. For her, it's her fourth kid. So that still qualifies as a firstborn, and also vice versa. Um, for, they still would qualify as a firstborn for the case of fasting on Erev Pesach. And they would have to fast, even if it falls out on Erev Shabbos, even if this is on a Erev Pesach as Erev Shabbos. Normally we don't fast on Fridays, but this fast would still be in effect on a Friday. Um, um, he says that if, you, if this child was born after miscarriages, so he's the first viable child, but not the first fetus or the first uh, baby um, of, of their mother, they would still qualify as firstborn for the, for the scenario here of fasting. Um, as long as the firstborn child is still younger than Bar Mitzvah, the obligation of fasting is transferred to his father, which was the case with me. I'm a firstborn, my dad is not, so he had to go either fast or hear a seum. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, so props to the dads who, uh, who aren't firstborn and carry that for us. Um, <coughs> Yeah, yeah. So it says over here something interesting that if if the firstborn, if the father, if the father is a firstborn, listen to this. If the father is a firstborn and he has a young child who's firstborn, so you might think that he could say, "Well, I'm fasting anyway, so I'm fasting." It doesn't work. You can't fast twice, right? You're just fasting for yourself. You can't double fast. It's either you are or you aren't. In that case, the mom has to take on the fast for the child. 
unless it would be painful for her, or if she's pregnant or nursing, in which case she's just discouraged from fasting in general, then we just say, okay, whatever. Nothing we can do. Nobody else to push it to. It's not like in the laws of inheritances, you have a whole family tree of who, who it falls to. It doesn't end. We eventually find someone. But here, I guess, we stop. Um, and then... The, uh, the common custom in many communities is to, uh, to have a seum, because if you have a seum of a tractate, a masachet of Gemara, then you would then host a celebratory meal, sudat mitzvah, and a sudat mitzvah in, in many cases will override the obligation to fast. And he says over here, It depends on the custom of the place, if the custom in that place is to hold a sudat mitzvah, and if that is sufficient to override the fasting obligation, I believe in many, many communities, if not all communities around the world, this is pretty much the standard practice today. It was a very widespread practice that um, even in a community like Kitchener, people are very well aware of the, the necessity of coming to Asium. And I've gotten phone calls already from people, are we having Asium? Are we having services? Are we going to have Asium? So, yeah. Um, no one, anybody going to be here Wednesday morning? No. Anyway, just in case, if you'll be here, we're going to have uh, services in Asium. Why, why does this not even come up with the other fast? Because I think the whole, the whole commemoration here is um, not as strict as the other fasts. Also, this is not a commemoration of destruction. Um, not that all the fasts are. Tanit Esa is not really a commemoration of destruction either. Um, it's a commemoration but, of almost destruction. Well... It's a little bit different, but you know this 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 fast here is uh, a fast of thanksgiving, more than a fast commemoration of destruction. We would be, um, you know, much more reluctant to override fasting in commemoration of destruction with sudat uh, mitzvot. Kind of basically eliminate the whole idea of commemorating tragedy. You just whip out a, a gemara and, and then, okay, so then what's left? Here, if the whole purpose of the fast for the first place was to acknowledge Hashem's role in saving the, the our firstborn, it's a fast of gratitude. So it's it's essentially celebratory already, right? So I, I think that's part of why it's not so you know strict and severe. And the other fasts, we're, we're not going to do this kind of thing to override because basically overriding the commemoration of tragedy with a celebration, so you're just eliminating the whole concept of commemorating the, the national tragedy. Um, <clears throat> I think. Zayin, number seven. If you are fasting, and it's time for Mincha, you will say Aneinu in Mincha like you do on any fast day. Um, if you have a group, a few of these firstborn who are fasting, and they're in shul together with a minion, the chazan should not be a bechar, because then that will trigger a requirement for him to say aneinu, which is a prayer of supplication and a little bit sad, um, in the repetition of the Amida, and we don't do any of that kind of sad prayer during the month of Nisan. Month of Nisan, there's no Tachna. Month of, month of Nisan is one big celebratory, miraculous month. It's inappropriate to have a prayer of Anenu in the month of Nisan. So therefore, if you're fasting as a firstborn on Erev Pesach, do not go to be the Chazan at Mincha. Do you still have to say Anenu even if you do the Siyum? 
Well, if you have the seum and you ate and you're not fasting anymore, so then there's no anenu. The fast is over. Yeah. Subjectively speaking, you're not you're not fasting. For you, it's not a fast anymore, so therefore there's no grounds to say anenu anymore. Um, <clears throat> by the way, quick tangent, this is why there's a bit of a, not a bit of, there, there is a halakhic issue with Yom HaShoah in the month of Nisan. Because you're introducing mourning into uh, a month where we really don't do mourning. We don't do uh, eulogies, we don't do anenu, like there's restrictions on mourning in the month of Nisan. So it's, it's a problematic date halakhically. A topic for another time. We do all the controversies of uh, state of Israel. Ches, number eight. Those who are scrupulous in mitzvah observance and rich will bake matzah at the matzah bakery for their seder at, uh, on Erev Pesach after Chatzot, Erev Pesach in the afternoon. That's what mitzvah matzot are? Matzot mitzvah are, yeah, baked on Erev Pesach afternoon. They're extremely expensive and hard to come by. Um, I've never had one. Maybe one day someone will get me for my birthday uh, on Matzot Mitzvah. Shuzman Akrovas Karban Pesach. The reason it's so special because that is exactly the time when we would bring the Karban Pesach, Erev Pesach in the afternoon. So this is uh, as close as we get right now. <coughs> Since that is the time where Chametz is already prohibited, Therefore, it's important that you um, relinquish ownership and deem um, completely nullified and and non-essential and irrelevant all the crumbs and all the specks that might form from making dough at that point. You know, whatever dough you have in your hand, you know you're going to turn into matzah. Fine, but what if a little bit flies out the bowl or a little bit gets stuck in your fingernails and who knows what? So you have to do a bittel when you're, repeat one more bittel when you're doing the, um, when you're mixing the dough. How you do bittel after the time when chametz is forbidden already is a good question because we just said before that you can't do bittel after, right? We said that in if base. So how this works, I don't know. I guess it's the best you can do because you're making matzah. Um, and the water that's used to rinse out the mixing bowls or whatever else, I guess that's probably about it, in a matzah bakery, those, the water that's used, in other words, the used water, right, after you washed out the bowl, should be spilled out on a, on a slope somewhere. And you should not have a stone floor in that area in order if you had a stone floor, the water would just sit there. It would be a tiled floor or whatever. So don't tile the floor. Leave it earth in that part of the bakery where you're washing the bowls. So that way the water just goes into the ground and gets absorbed and lost. Um, if you would pour them out on flat ground, or if it's a slope, but it's tiled, then what might happen is you have this water which is rinsing bowls. Okay, so the water picked up a speck of flour here, picked up a speck of flour there. Now it's just sitting there, and it's going to have enough time to sit and become leaven. So we don't want that to happen. And that would be that would lead to possessing chametz in your in your possession in your uh, domain. Um, 
And even if you're spilling the water from the bowls out into the street, so it's nobody's domain, it's nobody's territory, still be careful to at least pour them out on a, on a slope or on um, you know, actual earth. So if you happen to be, do this, to be doing this today, I think most streets are built in such a way that if you're pouring it on the street, the, uh, the uh, stormwater system, um, stormwater management of most municipalities will take the water on a slope down to the sewer. So you should be good to go. Um, if we have a few more minutes, why don't we just start the next... Um, what I think we should do is go to 118... Laws of getting ready for the Seder. Maybe we'll just do one or two here, but at least we'll just keep moving because there's really a lot, a lot of ground to cover and I hope we can cover the laws of the Seder as well. Okay? You guys got it? We'll just go till 9 o'clock, a couple more minutes. Aleph. Kuf Yudches, chapter 118, the laws of preparation for the Seder. You should make sure, make an effort to find nice wine for the mitzvah of the four cups at the Seder, if you can get red wine, which is as nice, if not nicer, than white wine, and it's as kosher, produced in the same manner of kashrus as the white, if all, in other words, all things being equal, you have an option of, right, of white or red wine, go with the red, um, the verse says, don't fear wine. How does it translate there? Uh-huh. So I'm not sure what the context is. Is that Mishle? Uh, yeah. Sounds like Mishle. I'm not sure the context, but the implication in that verse in Mishle is that wine's um, status is especially uh, prominent when it's red. So therefore, try to get red wine, all things being equal. But the implication is also, by the way, just to spell it out, that if white wine, if the choices that you have wherever you are are such that the red wine is low-class garbage like Manischewitz, and the white wine is some fine California dry Pinot, which is wonderful, um, go with the good white wine over the red garbage like Manischewitz. I just want to make it clear um, highly unrecommended to drink Manischewitz at the Seder and in general throughout the year and I uh, hope the company doesn't come after me but uh, really it's a tragedy that people think that this is Jewish wine what's that? Big Manischewitz hates this Big Manischewitz big pharma big Manny um, another reason why red is preferred it symbolizes blood. Shehayapare would slaughter the children of Israel and bathe in their blood. And in the countries where the nations are not that bright and they're liable to uh, come up with blood libels, uh, Jews have traditionally avoided using red wine on Pesach not to give our enemies any material and they deliberately use white wine so that nobody can accuse Jews of, uh, of anything ridiculous. Okay, we'll stop here to be continued next time, God willing.